0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We are privileged to have with us this morning someone with a substantial understanding and read-in on our international economics and politics with Citigroup, their chief global political analyst, Tina Fordham, in our London studios. An extraordinary day and history being made. Your evil task is you have to sort it out and write a memo. Get out front of Catherine Mann and Willem Bowder and give us a briefing <laughs> on how you will write this up today for Citigroup London.
1: Well, It wouldn't surprise uh, you for me to say that I'll refer back to what I've been saying all along. Trump wants to change the international order. And even before he took office, of course, we were talking about pressures on the post-war international system. Trump has accelerated that. Um, Perhaps, uh, you know, the obituary for for NATO has been written many times before, by the way. And and NATO comes out of this uh, with a more robust budget. But one of the most striking things about this for me is is how much President Trump was telegraphing certain headlines back the, to the domestic audience ahead of midterms. And that was, I shook down everybody in that room. Everybody ended up happy. Um, yeah, everybody was happy. And, and, yeah. and the U.S. is no longer paying the freight for what we used to call The peace dividend here in Europe.
0: Part of this is his own style, and there's people that agree with his style. He has really, his ratings have been extremely good across America. And part of it is his huge nostalgia for another time and place, and yet his disdain for the sequential presidents that we've had over the last number of years. Is his nostalgia doable, or is it just impossible? To go back to what he perceives as another time and place.
1: Uh, political nostalgia is is something that's present everywhere, and of course, it, it also was manifested in the in the Brexit debate. and And part of what I think it harkens back to is actually a desire for much more simple times. And when you heard the president's press conference today at, at NATO uh, in Brussels, he spoke in big clear themes, not about the detail when he was asked about specifics. Um, But he doesn't have nostalgia for the sole superpower moment. That's quite clear. And he's been very consistent about saying he thought that uh, that that, uh, wasn't fair, wasn't fair burden sharing. And a lot of Americans agree with him.
0: Uh, Citigroup cares about Brexit, obviously, with the city and with the financial commitment that uh, Mr. Corbett and others have made interpret for us this silly white paper that's coming out I, will anyone read it i guess is the first question but what's it mean for the city in the financial sector and are you a london optimist
1: well, um, the, the, that's a that's a mixed bag. I'm not sure a lot of people will read the white paper, including members of the cabinet. Uh, we, we are of course uh, moving away from uh, expertise and fact-based analysis. Um, I think we can observe here in London, though, that the so-called hard Brexiteers are really running against a, a brick wall in terms of their mm-hmm. uh, optimism about realizing their vision, and of course, hard Brexit. Uh, means no access to the custom union and everything Mm -hmm. else. In terms of the city of London uh, and, of course, the the, the companies that I talk to, I spend a lot of time going and talking to CEOs all around uh, Europe uh, in particular, Um, companies have been making their plans for some time now. They're not going to wait until a white paper is out. And we saw (laughs) an announcement from Airbus, for example, with, with that in point. Please tell
0: us tomorrow when we interview you. You'll be at Blenheim tonight for dinner? Absolutely, a-
1: absolutely. It's just a question of which uh, which diamonds, Tom. Which <laughs> which designer? Tina Fordham.
0: Thank you so much. You've been a trooper today to be with us through the extended comments of the President of the United States in Brussels. Ms. Fordham is, of course, with Citigroup, their chief global political uh, analyst.
2: Let's focus on what's going on in the world economy and... Uh, and in what's great in the- about it is
0: Mickey Levy's seen every episode of Downton Abbey, so it works.
2: <laughs> well, and he's probably visited Jerome Avenue at one point, too. Mickey Levy is the uh, chief uh, market economist, uh, is the chief economist, rather, for the United States, Americas, and Asia for Berenberg Capital, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Mickey, thanks very much for being uh, with us. Um, now... You know, I should just also mention that you served as at Blenheim Capital Management, so there's a kind of relationship there. Uh, what do you make of what's happening in in the world's economy? Do you think that the United States is out of sync with what is happening globally, or is the United States leading uh, the uh, the trend in in economic performance?
3: Last year, there was extraordinary synchronization in global growth, particularly Europe, Japan, the U.S., all of them were growing way faster than potential, and emerging nations were doing well. This year, uh, Europe has slowed down a bit, but is still healthy on average. Japan is still has slowed down, but is on average, and, and the U.S. has a lot of momentum, okay, and, and emerging nations are still doing well. So the global economies are doing well. Um, but what's so extraordinary, I just watched the um, uh, President Trump at NATO in his questions and answers is the the dynamics going on in the world, both econ- in economics, p- politics, um, and and trade negotiations and NATO negotiations. It's just extraordinary. And when we when we think about what's what's going on, yes, the u s. is speaking from, A position of strength Um, within Europe, despite everything. Okay, on average, we all know that that there are major problems in in Italy. Uh, We know there's Brexit issues. We know uh, Germany is very fragile politically. Um, One point I I, and, and and amid all this, China continues to grow rapidly, and China just wants to keep everything including all their trade and, and investment policies just the way they are and and so, so well wanting
2: won't make it happen
3: that that's correct so one of the insights I get out of this is it confirms my view is that you know President Trump is this very erratic um, and chaotic but very tough negotiator that that likes to poke the eye of the establishment and you have all the NATO members just basically saying, you know, everything's been okay, um, let's keep things the way they are and and be nice to yeah, each but other. How, and, but and Trump comes in and basically says, wait a second, I'm gonna ruffle everybody's feathers. And so one insight from this is in Trump's mind, he does he thinks about trade negotiations in the same breadth as thinking about Russia, the pipeline, China, uh, NATO, it's all intermingled and- and
2: But wouldn't that confirm the idea that that we are in some kind of global world where things are interconnected and that one thing does affect another thing?
3: Oh, absolutely. And another thing to keep in mind is that when you look at the world from Europe's perspective or uh, Japan's or China's perspective or the US, every country desperately needs each other for trading and so trump is pushing the envelope but ultimately every country will ultimately be willing to negotiate and and so one insight i got from today is just you know trump is going to um push China and China will eventually give in on some of their unfair trade practices and and there were several comments today in 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 the in the press conference about um uh, Russia and Putin
4: well he's headed oil. to um... and
3: and I think Putin right. has more he he wants to meet with with Trump more than Trump wants to meet with Putin because they desperately need something you know the, the the natural gas issues critically important
2: Thank you very much. Mickey Levy is Chief Economist for Berenberg Capital for the United States, Americas, and Asia.
0: Pim, why don't you bring in Dr. Perakis uh, with some really interesting perspective, not only on the president and an extensive press conference, but that European response as well.
2: Well, I just want to bring him in as the assistant project director for the U.S. project at the Chatham House. Uh, Previously, he uh, worked for Action on Armed Violence, and he is a native of Lewiston, Maine. So he's got the perspective from both sides of the pond. Uh, Jacob, thank you very Mm -hmm. much for being uh, with us. What did you make of the, uh, the president's news conference today?
5: It's been a fairly chaotic 24 hours. Um, It's hard to have one sort of singular takeaway um, unless you look back and remember that actually the president has been um, critical of multilateral institutions and of NATO and of NATO allies for – well, going back through his campaign and even before that, uh, he, he looks at what he sees as the balance sheet, and it's important to draw the distinction between what he sees as the balance sheet and what other American political observers or the rest of us might see as the balance sheet, um, and just sees debt. So he comes into the uh, the NATO summit and demands that Europe pay more, and then – and then demands that they get Europe pay even more than anyone has really considered in the past. Uh, the, the target is 2% of annual GDP, and that's a target for 2024. Um, he then makes the claim that Europe should aim for 4%, which not even the U.S. spends. It's an extraordinary increase and essentially an unmeetable demand. Um, there were then a storm of headlines this morning that he had threatened to, quote, go his own way, which is an implicit if not explicit threat to U.S. Participation patient in NATO, and then has a press conference where he more or less walks back and says, well, no, I think more money's been coming in. Um, I, I deserve credit for this. Um, so it's, it's, it's this, this incredible storm of confusion, which I think has drowned out any prospect of any other forward progress from the summit.
2: Well, I'm just wondering, why do you believe that it is an unmeetable demand? I mean, the United States, uh, the uh, defense budget, uh, nearly, you know, 700 Billion dollars. Uh, the next largest spender in dollar terms is the United Kingdom at 55 uh, billion, France at 45, uh, Germany at 45, and based on fiscal year 2019, 40 billion is what we just spend on the Marine Corps.
5: Well, it's important to remember that the U.S. has a completely different conception and a completely different and vastly larger set of uh, global roles for its military than any European country. Uh, When we're talking about NATO defense, actually, most of the U.S. military is not engaged in the European theater. It's a relatively small portion. So it's a little bit, uh, I mean, measuring military strength and military spending is incredibly tricky. The 2% goal, I think, is not a particularly uh, effective one. It's it's agreed upon because it's a nice, easy sort of tagline. It it goes some way towards demonstrating commitment, but some capabilities are very expensive. Others are perhaps more niche, but incredibly effective and come much more cheaply. Um, I think there needs to be a better way of measuring it, but you have to remember that the, the U.S. is a global military actor, and no European country is or aspires to be. So there's not really a political appetite in any European country to have the kind even at a sort of same uh, uh, population-based scale the same kind of global role that the U.S. does?
0: Did you hear the president's press conference, Dr. Pericles?
5: I, I heard I heard some of it. I wasn't able to listen to the entire thing, but I, I think I got the, Amer- to it.
0: the American media, whatever their persuasion—conservative, liberal, whatever—will fact-check this thing to death. For you, as a grizzled military slash international politics pro. Does that press conference need fact-checking?
5: I think to some degree the the, the fact-checking kind of misses the point, because at this point it's pretty well established that the president plays fast and loose with numbers. He talks about numbers which are either exaggerated or not really the math that anybody else is using. Um, that's, that's kind of established at this point, um, He didn't really say anything in that press conference that we haven't heard him say many times before. NATO was was not meeting its obligations. They're beginning to meet their obligations now, thanks to me. Uh, They need to do more. They need to do even more in the future. Uh, Europe has been unfair to the U.S. on trade. It's sort of a greatest hits parade of Trump's complaints about American allies in Europe. Um, So in the sense that a lot of that's either misleading or untrue, yes, it needs fact-checking. But in terms of You know, did he say, are there new claims that need fact-checking there? Not not particularly.
2: Jacob, as far as uh, defense spending goes uh, in Europe, uh, do you believe that, that we'll see more defense contracts for U.S. arms from European partners?
5: Well, here's the problem with Trump's negotiating strategy. I think it's not unreasonable to expect that European companies or European countries, rather, are looking at areas where they could procure from American companies by way of demonstrating commitment in the way that Trump likes to see. The problem with making a uh, an unprecedented ask like a four percent defense spend is it's going to convince those countries. That there's no point in trying to placate him. That no amount of buying Lockheed planes or uh, Colt rifles or any other American product is going to fundamentally change the nature of the president's belief. And and essentially, either an alternate arrangement has to be made or they have to uh, figure out yeah. sort of backup plans. Um, so. I think if he'd made, if he'd kept his demands a little bit more reasonable, there might be more uh, more there there. But I think there's a sense in which he's kind of pushed it too far and, and actually harmed his negotiating position.
0: Well, we have run out of time, but we will do this again. Thank you so much. Jacob Pericles is with Chatham House uh, out of the London School of Economics, and uh, wonderful to speak to him today on these uh, many issues.
2: Um, let's uh, pay attention now to uh, Brexit, and uh, I want to bring in Victoria Hewson, who is uh, international uh, Senior Counsel for International Trade in the Competition Unit for the Institute of uh, Economic Affairs. Uh, Victoria, I, I'm just wondering, based on what you know about the plan for Brexit, uh, what exactly do you believe Britain is prepared to To do right now, other than put out a white paper? Are they prepared to leave the European
4: Union? Well, this has been um, one of the great bones of contention that the Brexit supporting members of the government have had, which is that effectively there's been very little to no preparation for leaving the. Union and the single market actually done in operational terms. And the concern is that that has left us in a very weak position in terms of our negotiations with the European Union, because they know that we're not really in a position to be able to walk away with no deal. Therefore, we will have to accept whatever it is they're willing to give us. That's um, certainly not something that um, the Prime Minister and the, the Treasury would accept. They would probably argue that there's been a lot of preparation going on behind the scenes. It's not all visible. But unfortunately, that seems to be the perception that um, that a lot of people have in this country.
2: Well, uh, Victoria, I'm wondering if you could just offer one example of, uh, let's say, the ferry business, you know, the shipping companies and what steps they are taking, if any, in order to prepare for what might happen after March 29th 2019. That's the Brexit deadline.
4: Yeah, that's a great example, actually, because there's, there's a bit of a split here between the, um, the the ferry operators and ports who operate on the short crossing between England and France, the Dover to Calais route. And that's actually where the vast majority of UK to EU trade routes through. And that's really a very frictionless lorries drive onto the ferry at over or drive on onto the Euro tunnel and then drive off the other side and, and, and that's the that's the transit yeah. is, is finished. Now for them it's a very it's a very big deal if you are introducing new frictions to that process. So they're very worried. On the other hand, the other ports, for example on the east coast of England, um, which are much bigger ports that deal with containerized shipping, they're quite excited about this because this is a huge opportunity for them to win back some of that business from the short crossing. However, both sets of businesses need to know what exactly it is they're preparing for in order to be able to make the investments to to really make the most of it in, in the one case or to, to mitigate the um, the difficulties on the other hand.
0: Victoria, as you br- brilliantly described, just one example of the, the micro analysis of how Logistics and all will work. I'm sorry, it reeks Richard Neville, 16th Earl of Warwick, Warwick rather, and, and the Wars of the Roses. I mean, it's like history's just still there. There's this island, there's a channel, and there's Europe, and they have these these tensions that are always out there. In the modern age, bring you know the Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Salisbury over to Heathrow. How does Heathrow operate as you see the new Brexit?
4: So again, the the, the realities of international trade in in the modern era, um, fast forwarding a little bit from the the Wars of the Roses, um, is that as long as you have the systems and processes in place, it can be very low friction. So the vast majority of trade coming into the United Kingdom from outside the customs union is cleared within minutes or hours rather than days, and it's all done, the vast, vast majority, 98%, isn't subject to any physical inspection at all. It's all done by means of electronic pre-clearance and risk assessment. So as long as you have the systems and processes in place to do it, you can actually have very fast. effective, low-friction trade from outside customs union. In fact, I think you can probably um, recognize that in the case of the United okay. States and Canada, you have a very effective, fast border where automotive supply chains okay. are on on both sides of that border. But even-
0: Victoria, we've got to leave it there. We're out of time. Victoria Houston, thank you so much. Senior counsel, Uh, International Trade and Competition Unit for IEA. This was really, really interesting. Pim, I love how, thank you so much, Victoria. Pim, I love how we try once in a while to talk to people that are like worried about, okay, when this is all done, can the cows go from point A to point B in Ireland? Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast.